For marketing agencies and social media managers looking to prove the value of their work, I've got something special for you. Agora Pulse is not only Social Media Examiner's tool of choice as an all-in-one social media management tool, it also allows you to track the traffic, conversion, and revenue from every social post, comment, and private message. Learn how to prove your social media ROI with a free training or a free trial by visiting agorapulse.com SME today. Again, agorapulse.com SME. Welcome to the Social Media Marketing Podcast, helping you navigate the social media jungle. And now, here's your host, Michael Stelzner. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you so much for joining me for the Social Media Marketing Podcast, brought to you by socialmediaexaminer.com. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner, and this is the podcast for marketers and business owners who want to know what really works with social media. I am really excited about today's show. I'm going to be joined by Emily Best. We're going to explore how this independent filmmaker stumbled into crowdfunding and what it could mean to your business. But first, I've got a really cool discovery I'd like to share with you. After untangling a school of anacondas, look what Michael Stelzner found. Do you ever wonder kind of what the trends are? What if you could have some really cool insight into what people are searching for? And whether or not historically over time it's it's increasing or decreasing as a trend. Well, enter stage left Google Trends. It's a free service at google.com slash trends. What's really cool about it is it allows you to go ahead and type in a couple keywords, compare them to each other. For example, I typed in social media marketing versus content marketing. And what it does is it tracks activity on these keywords all the way back from 2004. And it shows you whether or not on a a scale, whether activity is increasing or decreasing relative to the other uh, search term that you're looking for. It's got a lot of really interesting features. You can turn on news headlines and these little kind of uh, letters with lines pop out at the peaks of certain, uh, certain things as the chart goes up. And if you mouse over it, for example, uh, on social media marketing on E, uh, Huffington Post wrote an article called Social Media Marketing for Small Business, How to Hang On to Every Fan and Follower. And that was uh, in 2013. And that was one of the things that, that Google believes caused a spike. And you can see how these media headlines uh, impacted people's interest. And there's a really cool capability called Forecast. And you can see kind of where the forecast is. For example, the forecast is scheduled to go up quite a bit for the phrase social media marketing. Now, what's really cool with this is there's a lot of capabilities that may not be immediately available uh, or it may not be obvious to you that they're immediate, immediately available when you first do this. For example, it, it does worldwide, but you can go down by country. So for example, I can go to the United States. And as a matter of fact, I can even go to a state like Alaska and I can see whether or not a particular region is searching Uh, more or less on these particular topics. It shows, for example, while I'm looking at this uh, social media marketing, it shows a map of the United States, and it shows New Hampshire, California, and Utah as the top three states that are um, have interest in the particular phrase, social media marketing. It also shows you other related phrases, and you can choose different times, the last seven days, the last 12 months, the entire thing, 
you can nail down to particular categories, arts and entertainment. How does arts and entertainment look for social media marketing versus other niches? It's just really, really cool because you get insight into things that basically people are searching for. What can you do with something like that? Well, you can kind of see whether the trend is moving up or moving down. And that might be something interesting to you as a marketer. I hope you found that valuable. Did you know that we can deliver awesome marketing info directly into your inbox? Simply subscribe to our weekly newsletter that comes out three days a week. You won't miss any of the updates going on in the world of social marketing. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates. Now let's transition over to that interview with Emily Best. Helping you simplify your social safari, here's this week's expert guide. I'm very excited to be joined today by Emily Best. If you don't know who Emily is, she's a filmmaker, publisher of Bright Ideas Magazine, and founder of Seed and Spark, a crowdfunding solution for the independent film industry. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. So today, Emily, we're going to talk about the concept of crowdfunding, and it's been a long time since I've talked about it on my show you got an amazing um, story, which I think I'd love to start with. How did you, why don't you start with what in the world got you into crowdfunding? I think the story would be really fun for people to hear. Sure. It would have to start by my saying that I was tricked into being a filmmaker in the first place. I was quite happily making no money whatsoever, producing and acting in theater in New York City. Hmm. And, um, and then I did a play with an actress named Caitlin Fitzgerald, who's now on uh, Masters of Sex on Showtime. Um, and she was uh, she played the lead in a play that I co-produced called Hedda Gabler, a famous Nordic play. Um, and that play was was put together by a largely female um, sort of production group, um, and we became very good friends. And Caitlin would come to set every day with these scripts for, you know, auditioning some of the biggest indie movies that were being made. And the parts for women were really kind of embarrassing and dismal. And we would, you know, get drinks after our show and rage against the state of women in cinema and how nobody represented the kind of friendships we were experiencing um, all the time, and and we should do something about that. We should adapt a French New Wave film to the stage in something that I'm certain only our parents would have come to see. Uh, and at that time, Caitlin was making a movie with Ed Burns, um, and the movie is called Newlyweds. It's absolutely adorable. And Ed Burns has been doing DIY filmmaking uh, on his own, you know, with Brothers McMullen, um, Nice Guy Johnny. He's been making movies like this forever. I think his most recent one was Fitzgerald Family Christmas. Um, but at that time, they were making uh, Newlyweds, and this is a film that he famously shot for $9,000. Mm. And Caitlin was really experiencing what truly DIY, scaled-down crew, independent filmmaking was being made possible by... Um, you know, the, the video capacity of DSLR cameras um, and, uh, and just the, the drop in price of technology and the rise of social media. So, uh, so she told me to come to set one day because as we were raging about why there should be better representation of women on screen, one night after we'd had just enough drinks to be convinced of pretty much anything, Caitlin said to us, guys, we should make a movie it's so easy and I'll prove it to you. <laughs> yeah. 
Exactly. I know. I, now I can say that with a hearty belly laugh. At the time, I was like, you're right. You're right. I know you're right. Um, so she takes me to set, and uh, I show up to an apartment in Tribeca, and I ring the doorbell, and Ed Burns answers the door, and he's like, hey, I'm Eddie. And I'm like, hi, I'm a puddle on the floor because you're the most handsome human being I've ever seen in my life. And he brings me inside, and he shows me the setup. Caitlin is acting in a scene with another actress. Their uh, cinematographer has one DSLR camera. They've got a guy with a boom. And that's it. There was no crew. There was no equipment. There was nothing. And I thought, yeah, I could produce something of this scope. No problem. Um, And that's really where it all started. How long ago was that? That was in uh, late 2011. So, so, so fast forward to 2010. So Jeez. fast forward to you had this big audacious idea to do your own film, right? And, and funding right. was part of the challenge, right? So tell That's us a little right. bit about that. Well, so Caitlin and Caroline, who wrote the script for the film that would eventually become Like the Water, did not write what Eddie was making, which was a a mockumentary shot in downtown Manhattan. Um, They wrote a slow contemplative indie drama about grief and friendship set in Maine in the summer. And what I was producing was of an entirely different scope, including that the equipment that we needed to use wouldn't have worked. The the scale that Eddie was shooting on just wouldn't have worked for the script that we were given. And I would get my first lesson in production, which is that your script has everything to do with how much it can be shot for. Um, So we were not going to make this movie for $9,000. And we managed to raise, in fact, our shooting budget was going to be $85,000. And we raised 65000 from a group we will now affectionately call Friends, Family, and Fools. Mm. Um, and we had a 20000 shortfall in the spring of 2011. And the way that most indie films work is a group of friends are getting together to make this movie. And there's like one magic window where everyone's schedules line up. And we had from the middle of June to the beginning of August for pre-production and shooting this film. And it was May. Pretty much summer break, right? (laughs) Summer break, exactly, right. Or whatever that means in the the grown-up world. Um, (laughs) And uh, and we were $20,000 short. And Caitlin was starting to get offers from much bigger directors. And I had, you know, already put six months work in. And I thought, I can't let this fall apart. We have to find some way to fund this. Could we communicate to our community somehow what this means to us? Why we think it's important for women's friendships to have better representation on screen and why this is a good movie to do it. So uh, I guess, you know, maybe it didn't take that long of a bunch of women sitting around a room for us to land on a familiar method for people crowdsourcing things, which is a wedding registry, right? Right. At that time, Kickstarter and Indiegogo were very, very new, and our broke filmmaker friends had heard of it, but like our friends' parents hadn't. Um, And we made the mistake that many filmmakers make, which is they think the platform is going to matter to their ability to fundraise, and I will talk later about why that's not true. Um, What actually ended up uh, happening is we built a list. We just literally made a list of everything we needed to make the film from the camera and the car rentals to the bug spray and the sunscreen, the wardrobe, the food, the coffee, all of it. 
And I typed it into a WordPress website. I put a PayPal link at the bottom. And the six of us working on that film at that time sent it to everyone we knew. In fact, a friend of mine just dug up a Facebook note. I don't even know if they have that feature anymore that I had posted about this in 2011. Um, so we send this wish list, we called it, to everybody we knew. And this really amazing thing happened. We raised 23000 in cash and literally hundreds of thousands of dollars in loans and gifts of locations and goods and services in a very short period of time, in 30 days. Uh, and then we were off to make our movie. Wow. And then a much more interesting thing happened, which is when we finished the film and premiered it a year to the day from when we started shooting, if you can believe that, um, at the main International Film Festival and everywhere we screened it subsequently, um, somebody who contributed to that campaign or somebody who knew somebody who contributed to that campaign showed up. And when we did specialty screenings, like uh, at the beautiful Strand Theater in Rockland, we sold out a 350-seat theater with a line down the block and around the corner for this tiny indie movie about grief that had no sex, no particular intrigue, just kind of a talky movie about life, you know, right? old friends and life. Yeah, a slice of life. Very cool. So just so I understand, uh, you all were sitting around and somebody said, hey, this should be like a bridal registry or a baby registry. We should go ahead and identify all the things that we need and um, and we'll, we'll make it so that it adds up to be at least $20,000 worth of stuff. And that's how we'll, was that your idea? Uh, you know, I actually can't take credit for it. I, I think, think it's brilliant. I think the idea came from, so my cousin Charles Best is the founder of an amazing organization called Donors Choose. And Donors Choose connects uh, teachers who want to bring more educational resources into their classrooms to donors around the country and around the world who want to contribute to very, very specific things. And his platform itemizes things. And I can remember talking to him about it at some point and saying, oh gosh, it's sort of like a wedding registry. And that had to have been really what got the ball rolling in that direction. That is really awesome. So you ended up basically um, uh, identifying all sorts of tangible things that people can relate to, right? And um, just like they would when they're registering. When, when That's they're, right. And, and, um, and what's the be what was the benefit to that? I mean, like, you, obviously there was lots of little benefits that came out of that, but do, yeah. you, do you feel like because you had, sounds like you had pictures of stuff, I mean, do you feel like that actually helped people mentally say, okay, maybe I can't put in a couple hundred bucks, but I can put in 20 bucks for the bug spray because I hate bugs. <laughs> okay. So I'll give you three. The first is it changed the way that we did outreach. So rather than asking and going after people to give us dollars, I went to a local car dealership, uh, local to where we were shooting the film. And I showed them this wish list and I told them about our project and they loaned us two are two picture cars. That means the cars that actually appeared as the characters' cars in the film for six weeks at no cost. Wow. I went to a local coffee shop. They gave us 60 pounds of coffee that kept us caffeinated throughout the almost four weeks of our shoot. Um, we reached out to brands uh, like, like um, uh, Paps Blue Ribbon who donated an innumerable uh, quantity of cases Tastes um, as great as its name, right? Isn't that the same? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, 
And uh, so that was the first thing, right, is it changed the way we structured our outreach. The second thing is um, it allowed our community, particularly of people who may not have a lot of money, to figure out how they could contribute. So some filmmakers, friends of ours, who had just finished shooting their film, so they didn't have much money, said, hey, we have the tents that you need to pop up for shade for your craft services table. We have craft services tables. We have coolers. We'll drop it all off to you. So you created, you really created a movement out of this thing, didn't you? Absolutely. And we didn't, we had no idea that we would do this. It all, it all really sort of happened organically. The other thing, my favorite thing is my cousin, who I don't see very often, but who I love very dearly, was working at a, um, like a, a supply, a ski shop supply warehouse, drop shipped us a case of bug spray and a case of sunscreen. Um, didn't have money to contribute, but ended up making the single most valuable contribution you can make for a summer in Maine movie shoot. Yeah. Last thing you need is mosquitoes, right? Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. So, um, I mean, I'm thinking through this and I'm thinking right now, it does make a lot of sense. People can get behind something they can understand, right? Like saying, donate money to my movie. Um, you know, just doesn't, you know, unless they know all the details about the movie, which they probably don't even need to know in this case, uh, it really doesn't matter. But if they say, Hey, here are all these different things. And ideally if they can see that a lot of people are participating in it and they want to be part of it and it's their little opportunity to be part of something they've never been part of before, because they probably find it very intriguing in your particular case, because it's like, Hey, I get to play a little tiny piece in a movie and then they've kind of made that action and they've made an investment. And that's why they were showing up at these, these filmings, isn't it? Well, right. So this was the third thing I was going to say is it made it their movie, right? Like if your house appears in the film, if you show up as an extra, that was another ancillary benefit that was extraordinary of this campaign as people came out to be in our movie, which was awesome. Um, it becomes their film in a very personal way. A little bit the way, I don't know, I always, when I'm going through someone's wedding registry and I buy them the colander, I spin this incredible fantasy in my head that every time they make pasta, they're thinking of me. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's a really important part of it, um, is that you get to create a story in your head of how you're engaging in the making of this film. Well, I, I love the story and I thought the story was so intriguing that we should, you know, obviously spend a little time on it like we did right now. So now let's get into some of the, let's get into some things that I think marketers who are listening right now might really want to, to think about. Um, first of all, not everyone listening obviously is in the film industry. I would imagine to say it's just probably a tiny little percentage of our, of our listeners. So why would a business that's not in the, in the industry of film um, want to turn to crowdfunding. What are some of the advantages from your thoughts? Sure. Well, so crowdfunding is really wonderful because it forces you to focus on the value that you provide to the only people it's actually important you provide value to to survive, which is your customer. I know that in the startup space, for example, um, we get very wrapped up in the value we can sh- demonstrate to the venture capitalist or the investor. But the investors may not actually be the right person to focus on when ultimately it's really about how do I provide maximum value to real live human beings to get them to give a dang about what I'm doing. 
Um, and, and that to me is like sort of the unique gift of crowdfunding is that you really have to articulate clearly directly to your customer why there should be a transactional uh, contribution from them for what you're doing. And also connecting your individual customers to the larger trajectory of your business. So the best crowdfunding pitches you see are, hey there, everybody, here's this big vision we have for whatever industry we're in, and here is how you can play a material part, right? Absolutely. And you know, there's a funny little story that some of our listeners might be familiar with, and you may even be as well, Emily, but there's a podcast called Startup. Alex Bloomberg is the guy behind it, and I think he probably started it about six months ago. And it was a podcast... He came from NPR, so he has this massive background in, in online, I mean, audio-based storytelling, journalistic mm-hmm. audio, if you will. Mm-hmm. And what he did was he decided to document in audio his entire experience trying to get venture capital. And, um, you know, he recorded all, the, all the, the pitches that he failed at miserably, and he released these in a series of podcasts. And then at the end, they ended up getting about 700000 out of the million that they were looking for. Mm-hmm. Then in the end, they opened it up to their listeners to help bridge the gap. And they ended up getting all the money from the listeners. It's a similar kind of a thing. But the difference is that they lured everyone in by sharing the story and the struggle of starting a business, which a lot of people are trying to do. And and they ended up, you know, developing an audience along the way, a very large audience. And then, you know, most of that audience had no clue what in the world their product was. All they knew is that it had something to do with podcasting. (laughs) And they, in a matter of weeks, were able to bridge the gap kind of in the way you were, in a different kind of way, right? But in the end, there was a story behind the whole thing. What's the importance of story here? I mean, I, I oh kind of think, you know, tell me about it. I mean, I know your background, you must have a lot to say about this. There are three things that I think are really important to underline about that story. And the first is the crowd comes before the funding. Right. And the second is your transparency and authenticity are probably your greatest branding assets. Um, in the world of crowdfunding. The extent to which people want to support you um, is generally built on reasons that you give them to root for your journey, so much so that they're willing to participate in it. Because it isn't just about... a, a So these guys are not going to have the problem where if they build this product and they sell it somewhere big, they're their backers are not going to come back and rage at them that they didn't get their equity piece like they did with Oculus. Because the proposition for that Oculus made was a lot more transactional. Like, give this money, get a device. And we should say Oculus Rift is, uh, was a company that was acquired by Facebook, I think, for... For $2 billion. Yeah, and that is a virtual reality company. But go ahead, just keep going. That's right. So there is a, there is a very common use of crowdfunding, which is to pre-sale, pre-sale products... Um, but if you're just making a sort of one-to-one transaction out of crowdfunding and your business does blow up and get acquired, you end up with consumers who feel a little bit taken advantage of. The story that this is about getting you to the next big step is an incredibly important part of successful crowdfunding, but it's, it's also how you build brand equity over time. It's how you get people super excited about your milestones and sharing the things that are happening because they were there first, right? There's the sort of, the sort of combination of um, uh, 
momentum and inevitability of success, right? These guys, by by talking about their many, many, many trials and tribulations, really helped people understand the momentum that they were building and also how difficult it was to build it. They were being very transparent and authentic about the challenges that they faced. But their persistence over time demonstrated a marvelous inevitability of success. These were people who were not, by God, going to give up, right? And so the, the amount of trust and social capital that they built over time by being transparent about their, the challenges that they faced um, got everyone so sure they were going to succeed that they were willing to you know, go the last mile to be a part of it. Oh, it's crazy. So let's talk about, I'm sure a lot of people right now are like, okay, I, I get, I get it. I think it's something that I might want to try. So where do you get started? You know, what are some of the first things that people need to think about when they're thinking about starting a crowdfunding campaign or even, or even the pre-stages, if you will? Yes. So we have to start in the pre-stages. Um, and the very first stage is who is my audience? Where are they? And how do I get their email addresses? Like we are back to marketing 101. Def- define the audience. Figure out where they hang out online and in real life, and develop uh, a relationship with them. And this takes time, right? So we ask our filmmakers to start somewhere very simple. Go out into the world. Go to film festivals. Go to where you know people who are interested in film are already gathering. Go to meetups. Go to theaters. Go to your local indie cinema. Tell people about your project. And if they're like, wow, that's something I think I'd like to see, ask them a set of questions that are very straightforward. Where do you hang out online? Are you on Facebook, Twitter, whatever? What times of day? What kind of news do you read? Like, Where do you get your news? Do you read any blogs? Do you listen to any podcasts? Um, you know, who, who are your influencers in terms of your communications? What kind of music do you listen to? What do you do in your spare time? Do you belong to any organizations? And you essentially come up with the research that, that, that helps you understand the list of partner organizations you should be targeting to amplify your message, the social media platforms you should focus your time and attention on, and they will often not be the ones you think they are. Um, and, you know, what times of day and with what tone should you start to reach people? And then you should start, you know, a, probably plan on at least a six-month outreach campaign that builds in various, um, you know, s- sort of um, incentives for people to join, first to follow your social media and then to join your mailing list. Um, because what we know about crowdfunding certainly is the highest number of conversions come out of emails because emails have demonstrated that you've brought people from the ether through the filter of social media and closer to the center. One of the things that I did, um, I had a project that I had started, which now is defunct, but I'll share what I did in the beginning stages because I think it might be interesting to people. It was called MyKidsAdventures.com, and it was a site designed to help busy parents figure out fun things to do with their kids. And um, one of the things that I did was I um, put together a page, you know, that was like a a holding page, if you will, that said just, and it had a video on there of what I felt like um, the mission of this whole thing was going to be. And it was two minutes long, was very well produced. And, um, and then it said, put your email address in there. 
And um, what I did was every week I came out with a little behind the scenes video that was a couple minutes long of what we were doing. Like what kind of progress were we making on developing the logo? Uh, what kind of progress were we making on um, surveys that we were doing and all the little things that we were doing? Here's the marketing plan and these are some of the things that we're doing. Just kind of these behind the scenes videos. And in a period of uh, about... Mm, 90 days, I got about a thousand people on that email list. Now I've so got a, hu I've got a huge platform, which a lot of people don't have, but even yeah. if I only got a hundred, I think that would be the start of something. And, and I think it's all about feeding them kind of stuff that they find valuable. And I think content is part of that. Don't you agree? Because absolutely, you can't just tweet it out the day it's ready to go and expect anyone's going to do anything, right? Absolutely. And I think, I mean, we're talking to an audience of very experienced marketing people by and large. Like I don't, what we have to tell filmmakers is social media is not a tool for shouting into the wind. Social media is a business tool. You have to go back and review your messaging and see what's working and what isn't and throw out what isn't working and do more of what is working. Um, but it's an important reminder, I think, for all of us. Um, I think we have a tendency to sort of uh, get into a groove and assume we know how our audience likes being talked to and not go back and really um, – carefully review how our social media is performing. Um, and I mean tweet to tweet or Facebook post to Facebook post um, to really understand what about this messaging isn't really working. Can I do some A-B testing um, and really see if I can hone the message in a meaningful way? Now, for the person listening right now that already has an audience, um, but they want to experiment with crowdfunding, um, you know, they've already got a, a, maybe they've got a YouTube channel with a loyal following, or maybe they've got a pretty huge following on Facebook or, or significant following on Twitter, you know, and they're actively engaged in that community and they're already there, or maybe they've got a blog, but they want to get into the crowdfunding thing because they want to use it to launch their next whatever. Yeah. Um, what's the, what do they need to do first? You know, I mean, like they've already know who their audience is. They've got an audience. What's the next step? You've, you've got to prove to yourself. So Getting likes on Facebook proves that you're good at getting likes on Facebook. And getting viewers on a YouTube channel proves that you're good at getting you viewers on a YouTube channel. That they will convert is something you should be proving to yourself well in advance of your crowdfunding campaign. So you should be talking about the rollout, the, the lead up to your crowdfunding campaign from as early on as you decide to do it, similar to the thing that you described. Like give them teasers of the pitch video. Give them, um, you know, ideas about incentives that they might uh, anticipate and see how they react. Because if you have an audience, then darn it, you should use them to gather data about whether or not your campaign will be successful. You can test these things with that predetermined market. I love that idea. And I see a lot of people do this. My friends who have written a lot of books, they might show a couple cover options from the artist, you know, and they might say, Hey, which one do you like better? You know, and that Absolutely. people go crazy about that stuff because they get a chance to give feedback. And of course, that feedback is very valuable for the author. So that's the kind of stuff that you can do to kind of let them know that you're working on something and that you would love them to, you know, give the feedback. And then when you announce it, they've kind of already anticipated it because it's coming. Right. So a crowdfunding campaign is won or lost in the organization. In that sense, it really mimics filmmaking. You say about films that they're sort of won or lost in the pre-production. Um, and there, there are sort of four major categories to organize. The first is the direct outreach. That is um, understanding how you're going to message everyone that you can reach via email. And there are, uh, there are sort of three categories inside that, right? The first is people you know directly who you know will contribute to the campaign. 
And those are the ones that you should absolutely be messaging well in advance, getting them to, uh, to be lined up to contribute on day one. And the reason is that crowdfunding campaigns as I said before, are, are won and lost by momentum, demonstration of momentum and the inevitability of success. Um, there's an amazing statistic sort of across platforms that campaigns that reach 30% in their first week have an 80% chance of overall success. Wow. Although I will say this, on Seed and Spark, all campaigns have an 84% chance of success because that's our current campaign success rate. Well, that's um, par- that's partly because you're probably helping people make sure that they get successful before they even start. Am I right on that? Correct. Yeah. Correct. We push them very hard uh, before we let them launch. So um, you need to get to 30% in the first week. And if you don't have a huge audience, you have a sort of smaller audience, you've got to pad that with people that you know because strangers tend to get on board a crowdfunding campaign for an unknown brand or film, or project, um, when about 30% has gone into the campaign. Why? Well, um, they need to know that your friends don't think you're a crook, right? They need to know that you're already doing some outreach. They need to see that you've got a little bit of momentum so they too can then trust that you're going to do right by their contribution. Um, So the first 30% is really important, and you want to try to get as close to that on day one as you can. So your direct outreach is really focused on making sure the people you know will contribute will do so on day one. Um, Creating all the materials, all the written materials, the emails that will go out so that you and your crowdfunding team are speaking with one voice um, to your email lists. And your email list gets subdivided, right? The people you know personally, the people you know well enough to write a personalized email to, and then kind of everyone else who you'll message the way that they're used to being messaged. Um, Your direct outreach also includes any partnership organizations that you've developed relationships with. Talk to me about that a little bit because some people might not understand. Like in the film space, I I get that. You know what I mean? Because um, you might have a brand that you partner with and you show them on the film or whatever. But elaborate a little bit on the partnership organization sides because this might be new to a lot of people that are listening right now. Sure. Um, It could be everything from uh, bloggers and podcasters to nonprofits uh, and and other brands, right? Other sort of friendly brands who you develop relationships with through sort of your message testing and audience shaping period. Um, Do they tend to just get behind it and just say, hey, we'll happily support you? Or is there typically some sort of an exchange that happens? Oh, there's absolutely an exchange. Thank you. I knew you were good at your job. Right. So um, the deal with partnership organizations is they'll tend to come up as you start to interview your audience. You'll hear more than one person listens to a certain podcast or, or reads a certain blog or um, interacts with a certain brand or, or set of products. They may be sort of native to uh, you. I mean, when we did our crowdfunding campaign for Seed and Spark on Seed and Spark, we had friends in the industry, right, camera companies and things like that who were willing to message their audiences on our behalf because we're not competitive and it's good for them if we succeed and they're nice people, right? So various relationships that you develop. And generally speaking, um, there's a sort of exchange. You have to define what you can offer to those partner organizations. And it usually helps if you've done your research into what are those partner organizations trying to accomplish. So for nonprofits with film, 
um, nonprofits have their own fundraising that they're trying to do all the time. Um, so generally, filmmakers that get engaged with nonprofits tend to be offering both new reach for those nonprofits and often content that they can use for their fundraising efforts on the other side. So what um, I hear you saying is they might, um, they might um, somehow... Um well, the, the organization that you're partnering, partnering with might somehow get mentioned on the the campaign as being a, a backer of it or perhaps somehow mentioned in the case of a film or, or, or some or maybe you guys do a little bit like uh, maybe you guys go up and, and do a little quick little video for them, kind of an exchange of services. Is that kind exactly. of what I hear you saying? Yeah. yeah. You need to offer them content. You need to offer them reach. Gotcha. Email addresses, whatever. Um for sure. And then you need to make sure that you're ready to provide them all the materials they need and the deadlines for hitting their mailing lists or being on their podcast or, you know, getting an article on their blog, whatever that is. Cool. Now, um, my last question is uh, platform. Um, obviously, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, as you mentioned earlier, are the ones that a lot of people think of. You have your own platform for filmmakers. Yep. And then, of course, there's even plugins that you can uh, add to your website if it's WordPress-driven and, frankly, just do it yourself. Um, does the platform matter? Talk to me about that. So, writ large, no, the platform doesn't matter because a, somebody who is prepared to succeed at crowdfunding will probably succeed anywhere. I do not recommend doing it on your own platform um, simply because the tools that you really need to mostly support the back end of crowdfunding um, are, are best made available to you on platforms that are built for crowdfunding. Um, what, what we learned recently, so there was, a, there was a research piece published in VentureBeat last year that pretty much across the board niche crowdfunding sites beat Kickstarter and Indiegogo on success rate and dollars raised per project. Um, we were listed among them. PubSlush uh, was at the top for publishing. You tend to get sort of better customer service um, at the, on the niche sites. Um, so it's also really worth looking at uh, niche crowdfunding sites, depending on what you're raising for. Wow, I didn't um, even know that existed. So, so for the publishing side of things, is that mostly people publishing um, books and stuff like that, or what exactly? Yeah. Okay, yeah, that's for that's for books specifically. Um, and there's uh, there's ones out there for fashion, uh, for music. Um, wow. Uh, so you could just type yeah. in crowdfunding and then whatever your keyword is and see what comes up, huh? Yeah, I mean, Kickstarter and Indiegogo have bought all those words, right? So they're going to come up first. Right. But if you do a little bit of digging, you'll you'll get to them. Um, there are a lot of great sites. Uh, I know Rocket Hub has done well for some startups. Uh, um, Tilt is a site that tends to do really well for sort of social action campaigns. Um, there are, yeah, there's there's a lot of options out there. For, for video-related content and film-related things, we have the highest success rate in the industry, which we're very proud to boast about, mostly because, um, you know, we're small but, but fierce. Um, but I think it's really, I think it's really uh, useful to understand that the role of the crowdfunder and the crowdfunding team is way more important than any platform. And honestly, any platform that promises you they can deliver you dollar results is lying to you. 
unless they're going to put the money in themselves. Well, I know, Emily, that um, it's hard to believe that uh, we've already come to the end of the interview because it's zipped by so darn fast. And this is so good. And I know we've just scratched the surface of it. So um, what I want to tell everyone is, first of all, where can they find you? Um, Where can they find more about your crowdfunding platform? Even if they're not in the film industry, they might want to look at it and look at it from a best practices perspective. And where would you want to send everyone? Sure. Um, so check out seedandspark.com. Um, and if you go to the How It Works tab, um, there's a whole list of documents there under awesome downloads, one of which is a crowdfunding to build independence handbook. And that handbook lists a lot of the best practices we've learned over time that are utterly applicable across industries. Um, you can find me at Emily Best on the Twitters um, or at Seed and Spark. I look at that one too. Awesome. Emily, on behalf of everyone listening right now, I just want to say thank you so much for illuminating, sharing your story about how you got into this space and for hopefully inspiring some people to say, okay, you know what? I'm going to give this crowdfunding thing a try. Awesome. Well, thank you so much. Well, I hope you found some value and a little bit of inspiration and maybe you are considering crowdfunding for whatever it is you're about to do. If you missed anything that we talked about in the show, well, we take extensive show notes you can find them at socialmediaexaminer.com slash 135. It stands for episode 135. Also, if you're new to the show, hit the subscribe button if you're listening to us on your mobile device. And uh, that will make sure you never miss an episode of this podcast. And of course, it's free. If you love the show, we'd love it if you consider going to socialmediaexaminer.com slash love. That will populate a tweet into your Twitter stream and you can even do it on your mobile phone. And it will help uh, get the word out about the show. This brings us to the end of yet another episode of the Social Media Marketing Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Stelzner. I'll be back with you in the driver's seat next week. I hope you make the absolute best out of your day. And may social media continue to change your world. The Social Media Marketing Podcast is a production of Social Media Examiner. Want more good stuff? Sign up for our top-notch social marketing newsletter. We deliver it straight into your inbox three days a week. Visit socialmediaexaminer.com slash get updates.